Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Oh, thank you. Well, it's good to be back up here uh, with you, and I'm excited to talk about a book I've spent a little time studying, and I've been thinking as we were preparing, uh, I was preparing this week for this message, I was thinking about um, the series, the story, and thinking about what makes a good book, um, what makes a book a good read. And as I was thinking about it, I came up with uh, a couple of key ingredients, key elements, I think, that make a book a good read. I want to give a few of them to you. First, I think it must have uh, a beginning, the opening paragraph needs to be something that captures our interest and attention. And then the book must have some dramatic developments that keep our interest going. And, uh, of course, we like a book where the characters are interesting and we watch them struggle with issues of life and the questions of life. And then, of course, if you're going to have a good read, um, the book, I believe, also has to have some mystery some questions that you're really wanting the answers to, and you're, you're trying throughout the story, the, the book, to, to figure out the mysteries that are being raised in that book. Um, of course, uh, a good book will have some kind of tension in it, a struggle between good and evil. There'll be a villain and a hero. And of course, we really like it when the hero comes to the rescue of the oppressed, writes all the wrongs done, defeats the villain, and in the end, good triumphs over evil. And I also was thinking that it's good to read a book where you learn something about the author. And by the time you get through, you want to read their next book because the first one was interesting. The Bible, I believe, is just such a book. God is the author. In fact, when you open the first page and you read the first sentence, it begins this way. In the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth, and so immediately, we, he, you got my attention. I don't know about you. You look up at the night sky, ever wonder how it all got there. Immediately, we're wanting to know who this God is and why did he make all of this? It raises a question in the first verse. We open this book and we start thumbing our way through. And we realize it's not just one book, it's 66 books in one. And it was written over 1,500 years by men from every walk of life. It was written in three languages, and currently it's been translated into over 2,000 languages. And it is the best-selling book of all time and the current modern-day bestseller. Pretty popular book. So why did he create it all? The answer begins to appear in chapter 2. And shocking as it may seem, this author, this God, wants to hang out with his creation. He wants to spend time with people. And they're living in a paradise, in a garden. It's just beautiful. It's, it's just a great beginning story. It's just, wow, animals... Land, sea, fish, birds, all kinds of things. But then we have a villain. In chapter 3, now the serpent was more subtle than all the creatures God had made. And so we're introduced to the villain. And he comes slithering into the scene, presents a temptation and to our horror, we now have a crisis in chapter 3 in which something called sin has now entered into the human race and all of this perfect creation. And now we have a tension between good and evil and we're wondering, what is God going to do now? 
And in chapter 3, we get the first indication that God has a plan to send a hero to deal with the villain. Have I got your attention? Maybe you're going to go home and see what happens next. I hope so. So we end up wondering, how is God going to deal with this issue? The, the two problems of humanity, the struggle with sin and the fact that we're mortal and we die. Did you know that we were never intended to die? That you were created to live forever? And so the death, physical cessation of life that is so common to our experience that we think is normal is the most abnormal thing about this life that we have. How's God going to do it? By the end of the book, our questions are answered. Every mystery is solved. And on our course of study and read from chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22, all of the, all of the portions of Scripture in between were um, entertained by an amazing cast of characters. We've got people here from every walk of life, from farmers, slaves, kings, prostitutes, tax collectors, politicians. Every walk of life is in the pages of this book. We find that there are individuals who appear on the stage of history from time to time, and they do very heroic things. And then we see very bad people doing very bad things. So we read this book, and it's an amazing read. But I, I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you do this when you pick up a book? You read the first chapter or two, and then you quickly turn to the last chapter to see how the story ends. Anybody here ever do that? Yeah, okay. My oldest daughter would do that. She would kind of speed through and she'd get to the end and then she was done with the book. She knew how it ended. She couldn't wait to get to the end by reading page after page. Never understood that, but that was her, that was her methodology for reading a book. Well, I am convinced that the Bible is the best book you will ever read for another important reason, and that is because it is the only book that has ever been written that is 100% historically accurate and 100% prophetically accurate. It is the only book that accurately tells you with 100% certainty what is going to happen in your future. I don't know about you, but I'm interested in how this world is going to end. And God has told us clearly how that will happen. He has told us the sequence of events that will precede his return. It's all here. It takes a little work to dig it out, but it's all here. And I would suggest to you that the days of his return aren't very far off. And I would like to share why I believe that with you tonight. I do want to say one more thing before I pray and get started. That was just the warm-up. Okay. <laughs> Um, this is not a story. It is the story. This is not a book of fiction. There's nothing fictional about it. It is the absolute unvarnished truth about all things related to God, life, death, and everything else worth knowing. And so we're going to see how the story ends tonight. Before we do, well, let's pray. Father, I thank you that you do nothing without revealing your secret to your servants, the prophets. You've told us from history, from the very beginning of history, what you planned to do. How righteousness would eventually rule this world. How good would triumph over evil. You told us in advance that Jesus would come as a baby born in Bethlehem, live a perfect life, die on a cross conquer death, and three days later rise from the dead to ascend to your right hand. You told us beforehand all of those things, and they're written in the story. And Lord, with equal accuracy, you've told us 
what to expect before Jesus returns. Help us to understand the signs of the times in which we're now living. Guide us now as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Just hours before Jesus went to the cross, he met with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and he had a private conversation. He kept talking to them about his death. He kept talking to them about the kingdom of God, and they really wanted to know, what, when will we be able to recognize your return? And so this was the question they asked in Matthew 24, 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? And secondly, what will be, the, how will we recognize the end of the age? Tell us. We want to know what's coming. We want to know what to expect. Now, in the rest of Matthew chapter 24, Jesus takes the time to explain in chronological, sequential order the signs they could expect to see before he would return. It's very, very clear what he said there. He also revealed that same sequence of events to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 6. The difference between the two chapters is that John was in heaven. He was seeing the future in a prophetic, visionary sense. He was seeing it in terms of all kinds of images and strange creatures and activities that were happening in heaven that would result in some corresponding effect on earth. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the answers to the question. What will be the sign of the coming, of your coming and the end of the age? Tell us, Jesus, what they are. And both of these chapters will agree as we would expect they would. And so we're going to start with the Revelation account and then read the parallel account in Matthew 24. The first thing John saw in heaven was this seven-sealed scroll. It's a scroll of parchment, and it had these wax seals on the scroll. And as he was watching, he was seeing the Lamb of God, Jesus, removing each of these seals in sequential order. And as he did, as Jesus removed these scrolls, he was invited to, as it were, peer down on earth and, and he was invited to come and see. See what happens on earth when this seal is removed. And so let's look at the first thing he saw. Revelation 6, 1 and 2, it says, Now when I saw the Lamb open one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Okay, so we read this, and we think, well, what does that mean? What is the white horse? We think usually of a guy on a white horse as being the good guy. Not in this case. He is one who will come in the future and appear like a Messiah-type figure. He will come forth in the future and appear to be someone who will fix the world's problems. In fact, I can tell you that the rider on this particular horse will initiate the last seven years of history. And there is one event, the Bible tells us what it is, in Daniel 9, 27, there is one verse in the entire Bible that tells us what will signal the last seven years of history. And that event is that this individual, who you will know as the Antichrist, this individual will broker a treaty with the people of Israel. We don't know the details of the treaty, but we suspect it has something to do with what Israel has wanted for the last 50, 60 years of their existence, peace with security. It will promise them peace, but it will also permit them to do something that has not been done in 2,000 years, and that is to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem and renew their sacrificial worship system. When that event happens, many will view the rider on the white horse as a great hero, 
I mean, who wouldn't celebrate an individual that could somehow do what no other president could do? Peace in the Middle East. Someone will. Someone will come forward and enter into a seven-year treaty with Israel. But he will also break that treaty three and one-half years later. The first thing Jesus said to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, he said this. He said, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. In other words, Jesus said, the first thing that you can expect to see before I return is deception. People will think that good is evil and evil is good. People will think, I'm my own God, I can do whatever I want. Nobody should, have to, no, nobody should tell me what to do. We're living in an age, I hope you realize this, where right is wrong and wrong is right. We're living in an age where Judeo-Christian biblical values are being, should I say, highly discouraged, rejected outright, considered old-fashioned, archaic. You know, it's amazing to me the things that people believe. I am convinced today, and I run into this all the time, that people take their belief system more from what they read or see on a TV screen or on the Internet than they do from God's Word. (laughs) And the things that they believe are shocking. And And my question is, is how did you come up with that? Who told you that? We're... In this day and age, it's, it's amazing to me how anything that even remotely sounds spiritual, people think is automatically good. Listen, folks, there's two spirits. There's the spirit of God and the spirit of the evil one, the spirit of Antichrist. It's been in the world and it's been at work since the very beginning. He's a deceiver. The devil is a subtle deceiver and a liar from the beginning, and he's still at work. That's why we have cults, false religions. And all kinds of lies that are circulating today. Jesus said, take heed. Take heed. He said to his disciples, make sure, number one, don't be deceived. The only way you will be deceived is if you don't know the truth. John looked. He looked at the scroll and he saw the lamb remove the second seal. And when that happened, he said, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. And that people should kill one another. And it was given to him a great sword. Well, let me ask you. If a treaty had just been signed, granting peace in the Middle East... Sovereignty to Israel, permission to build a temple. Do you think there would be folks that would take issue with that? There would be people that would be violently opposed to Jewish people building a temple and renewing their sacrificial system. But that's not even the most serious of things. I want you to notice one part to this verse. It says that people should kill one another. Uh, It's important to recognize that this is not a description of a well-organized war. It's describing anarchy. It's describing anarchy. So if you're taking notes on the back of your bulletin, number one, you can put in the word deception. Number two, you can put in the word anarchy. We're talking about the breakdown of the fabric of society, the rule of law, and order. When that second seal is removed, John is seeing this blood red horse going out and a rider on there with a sword and he's seeing death on a horrific scale. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 24, verse 6 and 7, going right down the line. He says, you will hear wars and rumors of war. See that you're not troubled for all these things must come to pass. Please notice, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. So Jesus is telling us the same thing. He's saying you're going to start to see the breakdown of the fabric of society, law and order. The world will literally start coming apart at the seams. And I think we learned something from Hurricane Katrina. When the police leave town, what happens in the community? Anarchy. Desperation. 
It doesn't stop there. There's several seals to go. The third one was open. And as John looked, he said, when he opened the third seal, he said, I heard the living, third living creature say, come and see. So I looked in a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a, a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. A black horse, the color is significant, speaks of death. A day's wage to buy one loaf of bread. That's what a denarius is, and that's what a quart of wheat will produce. Whatever you make in a day, that would buy you one loaf of bread. So what are we talking about? Jesus put it this way in Matthew 24, 7, then there will be famines. What we're talking about is a breakdown of the global economy. We're talking about a collapse of the one world economy that we currently live in right now. And both accounts agree. John looked and he saw a fourth horse. The four horsemen of the, the apocalypse. You ever heard of them? That's what we're looking at. When he opened the fourth seal, he said, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, hunger, death and by the beasts of the earth. Let me try and put this in perspective. Build the picture with me. You have a declaration of peace. You have an unraveling of the world's nations and kingdoms. Anarchy breaks out. Collapse of the global economy. People are desperate. Breakdown of law and order. With a broken economy, what will happen to the supply of food? It will be suddenly cut off. You know, we live on a just-in-time delivery system, don't you? It'll take about two hours for every grocery store in the whole country to be emptied. And so, with the entire system broken, you have death by starvation. When there isn't food in the delivery of medicines, then you also have sickness and disease that isn't able to be treated. The system is overwhelmed. People go out killing one another. There's death by the sword. There's death with hunger. There's death and death itself, which is a word that's used to describe disease. And by the beasts of the earth. Interesting. There's such a massive death toll. There isn't enough time to even bury the dead. Did you notice that it said he has authority or power over one-fourth of the earth? That equates to 1.75 billion people. And all of this that I have just described will happen within three and one-half years. With the world in chaos, people will then do one of two things. Let me read the, de uh, the passage from Deuteronomy. Jesus said there will be pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these are just the beginning of sorrows, Matthew 24. Jesus said that's just the beginning. We're just getting started, in other words. But the end is not yet. So what happens historically when you have this kind of chaos happening in a country? The very first thing that the people do is they want to find someone to fix the problem. They want peace and prosperity. They want, they want somebody to come and fix the problems. And at this moment, the Antichrist will step up and answer the call. The second thing that will always happen, this happened in Nazi Germany, it happened in Hurricane Katrina, Someone needs to be blamed for all these problems. Jews, Christians, and anyone who opposes the Antichrist will be mercilessly hunted down, persecuted, and put to death. Jesus is saying this is what will happen. This is the sequence of events. And when they find someone to blame, over six million Jews were put to death in Germany. Can I suggest to you that that was just a dress rehearsal for a future act? Because we read that when the fifth seal is removed from the scroll, this is what Jesus said would happen then. Next. 
and what it says in Revelation. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they, were, they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brothers would be killed as they were, was completed. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, another word for the Antichrist, when you see him, spoken by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, standing in the temple, and declaring himself to be God, then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, never ever shall be. This is a grievous time in the history of the earth. Jesus is describing it as the most severe time of suffering and persecution the world has ever known. I don't know how, what, how you listen to the news, but there is not one day that goes by that I don't see something in the news that tells me we're pointing in this direction. We're already, the pieces are being put in place for this to happen. All kinds of things. Putin sending his warships in the vicinity of, of uh, Syria. The, the prospect of the United States attacking Syria the remnants of the Assyrian Empire of the Old Testament, the Israelis lining up to get gas masks, fearing a chemical attack, threats from Iran that if Syria is attacked, they will no doubt retaliate, surveillance cameras, drones, miniature drones, face recognition technology. Your cell phones know where you are. Somebody knows where you are at all times whenever your cell phone is on. You can be tracked. You can now walk into a store. Your face is scanned. Your image is then sent to a database. And by the, time, by the time you walk 10 feet into the store, they know who you are. They know what you purchase. They've already accessed everything you put on Facebook. They know more about you than you can possibly imagine. The technology exists. People already have embedded microchips to help them access secure systems, to gain entrance into secure buildings, microchips that identify who you are. So how close are we? Well, I don't know. The Bible says no man knows the day or the hour, but Jesus says you better be able to recognize the season. I'm telling you what's coming. I'm telling you the sequence of events. The sixth seal is removed by the Lamb, and this is what John says. He says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a, f as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind, for the great day of his wrath has come. We're talking about cosmic uh, disturbances here. We've seen the martyrs in seal number five. We've seen incredible death by the sword and disease in seal four. Now we're seeing cosmic disturbances. We're seeing things supernaturally happening that man can't do. All these other things are the result of man's sin. This is something supernatural. Do you know what I think God's doing? Sun, moon, we're going to turn out the lights. Stars fall from heaven. And so... The whole night sky is very, very dark. A perfect backdrop for the glory of Jesus Christ coming on the clouds like lightning from the east to the west. And in the twinkling of the eye of an eye, you are caught up and caught up into the, into the clouds to meet Jesus in the air. 
Please notice what Jesus said about it in Matthew 24, 29 to 31. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then this sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Glory. This same moment is described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. Paul writes, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. We call that the rapture. Jesus coming for his bride, the church. And when did this happen? When does this, what's the sign? Remember the disciples said, what's the sign? Sun, moon, stars. That's how you know the sign. There's one more seal. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. This is an ominous moment in heaven. It's an ominous moment because every time you find a scripture in the Bible in which heaven is described, you see it as a very noisy place. People, angels, multitudes are singing, they're worshiping day and night, forever and ever. It's a noisy place. For about a half an hour, nothing can be heard. It's like a pin can be dropped and you would hear it. Why? Because the seventh seal has been removed, the scroll can now be opened and its contents read. And what that scroll contains is, is a description of all of the sins and crimes that have been committed against God's children from the beginning of time, warranting God's judgment, which will fall in 14 different installments. Seven trumpet judgments and seven bowl judgments. So why doesn't God just do away with it all at once? Why doesn't he just wipe the map? Because there are still people on earth who have not taken the mark of the Antichrist. They have not bowed their knee yet to the Antichrist nor worshipped him. They have refused for whatever reasons, maybe reasons of faith, maybe reasons because they won't submit to the new world order. They won't follow and worship this world dictator. And so God, in his mercy, is withholding his wrath, and he's pouring it out incrementally in installments in the hopes that those who are still undecided will choose to repent and be saved while there's still a chance. The final judgment of God will take place in the 14th installment at the Battle of Armageddon. Jesus Christ with the armies of heaven will come and destroy the Antichrist and all the armies of the earth who are gathered together at the plain of Megiddo just north of Jerusalem. They will all assemble there and their motivation is to come and annihilate the Jewish people once and for all. Jesus will descend from heaven with the armies of heaven and will destroy the Antichrist and all of those armies in a horrific battle. Forty-five days later, all humanity left on earth will be judged. Those who are saved and righteous will then enter into the kingdom reign of Jesus Christ, ruling on this earth for 1,000 years. Those who are not saved will be condemned forever. So where do we live? 
At what point are we on the stage of history? If midnight is this moment when Jesus returns and the battle of Armageddon takes place, I would suggest to you we're at 1159. Right now, if we look at the signs of our times, let's just take a brief survey. Right now, our nation is $17 trillion in debt. We are going in debt every year to the tune of two more trillion. We overspend by a trillion and we have to pay a trillion in interest. By the t- time the new elections come up in 2016, the debt will be somewhere north of $20 trillion. And I think we could all agree there is no one in Congress who has the political power to reverse that trend. They cannot decide what to do. And we're actually in good shape. Countries like Greece are already bankrupt. Cyprus, bankrupt. The European Union moved in, and they went into the bank, and they took people's pensions away. Imagine that. The European Union moving into a sovereign nation and saying, we are now going to take your money because you're in default. You're bankrupt. Spain and Portugal aren't far behind. Germany is trying to bear the weight of all of the European community's default. The ratio of debt to GDP, gross domestic product in some countries, is over 240%. We're at only 108. Listen, here's the point. We're just on the precipice of this global economic collapse the Bible predicts will happen. A quart of wheat for a denarius. Anarchy. Wars. Rumors of wars. Death by disease. Starvation. We see instances of that. We always have throughout history. We're talking something on a global scale. The market crash of 1929, just a dress rehearsal. So in humanity's desperation, they will long. They don't care who the individual is. They don't care about his character. They don't care about anything about him. All they want is somebody to step forward and fix the problem. If they can promise peace and prosperity and make good on their promise, we'll vote for him. And most people on this earth will. They will be willing to sell their soul and worship the Antichrist, take his mark, so they can buy groceries, pay their bills, and attend to their medical needs. But some will not. Revelation 13.8 says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book, of life of, the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You see, those who know God, those who have found Jesus Christ as their Savior... This is how simple it's going to get in the days to come. It'll come down just to this issue. Christ or Antichrist? You choose. If you choose Jesus, you might die of starvation or disease or some other things, but you will live forever. If you choose Antichrist, you may live for a few more months or years, but you will lose your soul. That's the choice. That's where we're headed. No wonder Jesus said to us in Mark 8, 35 to 36, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? How much is your soul worth? How much is your eternity worth? How much are you willing to put up with? Well, the book of Revelation says there's more. There's a final judgment. After the thousand years, can you imagine this? For 1,000 years on this earth, Jesus Christ will be physically present. He will rule and reign over the earth. The few survivors who managed to get through the battle of Armageddon and the sheep and goat judgment, when they enter the millennium, this thousand years of, of Incredible peace. Can you imagine a thousand years without war of any kind? 
There won't be war. Oh, not only that, people will start living longer. You know that people will start living hundreds and hundreds of years again, just like they did before the flood? Bible says so. It'll be incredible. And people will begin multiplying. The earth will repopulate to the billions in that thousand years. We went from one billion in 1850 to seven billion in just 150 years. Incredible. And so Jesus is going to literally kind of give us a bit, a taste of heaven on earth to the people who lived during this time. But after the thousand years, everyone will be tested once again. And can you believe it? The devil will be loosed and he will be permitted to tempt or test the people on this earth. And they will once again be given the opportunity to choose Jesus or the, or, or the devil. And you know what? Multitudes will choose the devil. And there will be Armageddon too. And after that is all over and they are slaughtered and they are killed by the very presence of the Lord, survivors in, in hell and death and on earth will appear before this thing called the white, great white throne judgment. Let me read to you what that looks like. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. John writes, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was, now, there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. The, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the final judgment of mankind. That's the final sentencing. But there's more. That's not the end of the story. After this great white throne judgment in which God judges humanity. By the way, if you're a Christian, you will not need to pass through that judgment. John 5, 24 says that if you believe on Jesus Christ, you have passed from death to life and you will not face this judgment. You'll be judged by Jesus for your works and how you invested your life. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 tells you that. But your eternal condition is secured. And so, how did the story begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it was corrupted, polluted by sin. But in Revelation 21, 1 through 5, God says, here's what I'm going to do. John is witnessing the scene. And he says here that God is going to create a new heaven and earth that has never been nor will be corrupted or polluted by sin. John says, I saw a new heaven and earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no more sea. And John saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them. And be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. Hallelujah. Do I hear somebody out there? No more pain. Anybody here in pain? There shall be no more pain. The former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and Faithful. This is the absolute fact of the matter. This is how it will be. As I said earlier, this is not a book of fiction. It's a book of fact. And people will say, well, I don't believe in God, heaven, or hell. Well, let me put it to you this way. You believe that to your own peril. These words are faithful and true. I don't know about yours. I don't know where you got your opinion, how you fabricated it, where you, you know, how much research you've done, but this is the fact right here. Are you really willing to bet your eternal destiny on your own private opinion? And by the way, what if you're wrong? By the time you find out, it's too late to do anything about it. 
Today is the day of salvation. And so God is extending his invitation. He has been doing so since the very beginning. Revelation 21, 5 through 8, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, aren't you glad that Jesus died to pay for all those things? Okay. <laughs> People are thinking, oh my gosh, I've done some of those things. Absolutely. That's why Jesus came. So we wouldn't have to suffer that fate. He paid the price of suffering and death that we deserved so that this would not be our fate. So even if these things had been done by you, Jesus said, I paid in full for that too. Charge those to my account. And in exchange, God gives you all of his righteousness so you stand acceptable in his sight, blameless and irreproachable. That's an invitation and it's a warning. Jesus is saying, I have the water of life. Are you thirsty? Come. So let me conclude with God's message to us as Christians. I want to go back briefly to Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Because in those two chapters, Jesus is telling us this. He said, look, I don't want you to be ignorant and unaware of what's coming. So he sent gave John the assignment of writing down seven letters and to distribute them to seven churches that existed in the first century. They're representative of churches of all time and Christians of all time. And he said, I want you to write these letters, send them out, because I want them to be prepared for what is coming. Difficult days are ahead. And so he warned some of the churches and Christians in them that the light of their witness was going out because they'd allowed their relationship with God to degenerate into religious duty. You've left your first love. He wrote to other Christians he labeled lukewarm. They were apathetic and indifferent because they'd allowed their possessions and riches to choke out the life of God in their hearts. He wrote to other churches and Christians and he said to them, you know, I have some things against you. You're engaging in immorality, idolatry. You're allowing your minds to be turned from the truth by believing teachings of the demons and, and heretical ideas. You're not, you're not walking in the truth. You're deceived even as a Christian. Do you know that out of the seven, only two, only two churches, Jesus had nothing bad to say about them. The two churches were, number one, the persecuted church. Number two, the church that was actively engaged in preaching the gospel in places where they had never heard the good news. Those are the only two. The other five compromised. But in every one of the churches, he said these words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give. And then he spells out a reward. To him who overcomes. Overcome what? Listen, we have all kinds of things to overcome. We're living in the days of Noah and the days of Lot. We're living in a culture that says that immorality and idolatry is to be celebrated. We're living in a culture when we're discouraged from having biblical convictions. We're living in a day of consumerism where our life does consist of the things we possess. We're living in a day of spiritual complacency. We've gotten so comfortable we don't even know what it means to suffer sometimes. Or to sacrifice. What do you have to overcome? I don't know. But I do know this. We all have something. 
In 1 John 2, 28, this is my prayer for you and for myself. The Apostle John said this, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. And his word to us is be an overcomer. Put away foolish things. Be kingdom-minded, not earthly-minded. Lay up treasures in heaven, not on earth. So that's the story. That's the story. It's the truth. It will happen just as it is written. And in closing, I think we all have to ask and answer this one question. How will the story of your life read? It's being written every day. And my prayer is that each one of us will ask Jesus to help us write a good ending. That we will partner with him and say, Lord, help me to do well, to finish well. Help me write a better ending than my beginning. If you're not a Christian, I hope you make the decision tonight to become one. It's not hard. It just means that you admit the obvious. You tell God, I have sinned against you, God. I've sinned against people. Please forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. Come into my life and be my Savior and the Lord of my life. And do you know that God says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? That's his promise to you. But you have to ask. So that's the end of the story. And I conclude with Revelation 21, 22, 21. It says, even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've shown us things to come, that you've revealed to us your incredible patience and kindness, grace, mercy, and love. I thank you, Jesus, that um, you have made a way for us where there has been no way, and that you died for our sins, that we could live forever with you. And so, God, as we're facing these last days, we're looking at the signs of the times that are all in front of us. I pray that we wouldn't be dull, but we would be able to hear what your Spirit is saying to each one of us. That we would choose to walk a holy life, that we would repent daily, and that we'd be found doing your will and not our own. I pray, God, for any who are struggling here tonight, any of those who are struggling with a decision they need to make, and that, God, they would choose you, that they would step out in faith and believe for you. We thank you for all that you've spoken to our hearts tonight, and we say amen. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.